You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Hi everyone, today we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 from verse 23 through to chapter 11 verse 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbour. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's great to be with you. A very great privilege to be uh, talking to you today and uh, sharing in your series on 1 Corinthians. I'm so pleased you're working your way through this book. It's such an important book in the New Testament and such a really relevant book uh, for us today. So I do pray that God will bless you uh, as we spend this time together looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's a great chapter because it tackles one of the major challenges that we all face. Uh, those of us who've been Christians for a long time face this challenge. New Christians face this challenge. And it's a challenge you need to think about if you are mm, thinking about becoming a Christian. You'd need to think ahead about this particular challenge. And it's how you make the connection between your Christian self and your real self. It's, uh, if you like, the connection between your Sunday self, uh, who you are when you're in church, and your Monday to Saturday self. It's how you live when you're living as a member of the church family and how you relate to other people, other family, friends or people at work. 
It's how you live in your Christian world and then how you live when you're not so consciously in your Christian world. For following Jesus is not just a kind of add-on that you can just clamp on to life as normal. You can't just add Jesus Christ and keep everything the same. Just add Jesus as part of the mix. For following Jesus changes everything. Following Jesus shapes everything you are and do and think about and want and desire. Following Jesus affects absolutely every part of your life. There's a saying which was uh, common when I was young. If Jesus is not Lord of all, that is, of all of your life, then he's not Lord at all. Once when Jesus was praying for his followers, he prayed that they would be, listen to these two phrases, in the world, but not of the world. You'll find that prayer in John chapter 17. That is, he wasn't praying that the disciples would be kept out of the world, huddled in the church. He wanted them to be really in the world, but not of the world, that is, shaped by the world, controlled by the world, living as the world lives. He wanted them to be in the world, but not of the world. There's the challenge. There's the call. There's the transformation. Because if we don't live 24-7 as Christians then we are just hypocrites. And there are quite enough religious hypocrites in the world without us adding some more. Hypocrites are those who sing one thing in church and act very differently in everyday life. Hypocrites are those who feel close to God when they're with other believers, but live far from God when they're not with fellow believers. Christian hypocrites are those who know what is true but never actually put it into practice. Christian hypocrites are those who talk the talk but don't walk the talk. We have to learn, you see, to be in the world, not, not to retreat to a Christian huddle, but not of the world, conform to the world, shaped by the world, rather than in being shaped by Christ. And this chapter of 1 Corinthians will be a great help as God speaks into our lives through his word. So let's pray now that God does that as we turn to the scriptures. Uh, most gracious God, we thank you that you made human beings in your image. We thank you that the Lord Jesus was a human being just like us so that you understand us from the inside. We thank you that you understand and know what it is for us to try and bridge the gap between what we believe, what we know to be true, and the way we actually live. So please teach us from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 today, and please encourage us from this chapter that we might be your people 
all the time, not just some of the time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the problem in Corinth back in the first century when Paul wrote this letter was just the problem I've described. Many, see, many of the uh, people who were in the church at Corinth had been converted to Christianity from very unchristian backgrounds. And while they liked being Christians, they were still living unconverted lives. If you like, they were converted, but their lives weren't yet converted. And that conversion, I might say, takes a very long time. And the particular problem Paul is writing to them in this section of Corinthians is idolatry. That is the worship of idols or the worship of false gods. Now, the issue of idolatry, the worship of false gods, is an issue in many parts of the world. Uh, today, you can walk down a street or a, uh, a, a, through a village or in the countryside in many parts of the world, and you can see shrines and temples and altars to different kinds of gods. Or you can see people worshipping animals or birds. Or you can also see uh, the fear of natural forces in the world, that people are actually frightened of these things. And in the Roman Empire, in the days of Paul and the Corinthians, there were so many gods. It, it was just wonderful. If you like gods, there were lots of them. And all of them expected to be feared. All of them expected to be bribed. All of them expected to be served or worshipped. Here are some of them. If you were interested in poetry or music and oracles, you went to Apollo, the god of the sun. If you liked a spot of wine, then you would uh, pay your respects to Bacchus, the god of wine. If you were looking for a bit of love, then Cupid was your god. If you were a bit of a gambler, Fortuna would be your god, goddess. If you didn't want it to rain, you'd talk to Jupiter or Jove. If you were going to war, you'd pray to Mars. If you were trying to make money, you'd ask Mercury for some help. If you wanted more love and more beauty, Venus was the goddess to go to. If you were a midwife or about to be in labor, Devera was the goddess you went to. If you wanted to look younger, Juventa was your girl. Somnus, you'll be happy to know, was the god of sleep. And if you were having trouble with your sewers in Rome, Cloacina was the goddess who looked after the sewage system. Well, if you're going to have a sewage system, you need somebody to look after it. And that was her. She got that job. Then, in addition to the kind of official Roman religions, which were generally practiced, there were some esoteric Eastern mystery religions as well, which were much more fun. They were like secret societies. They were more exciting. The one I like best is uh, that if you wanted to be initiated into this particular religion, you'd go into a pit in the ground and then someone would slaughter a bull over the top of the pit and you'd be covered in bull's blood. That sounds like fun to me, apart from the disadvantage of the flies which would then follow you home. There was so much religion, so many gods, it was hard to buy food in the market which had not been offered to a god. And even an invitation to a, a meal at the home of a friend might be in the form of an invitation to come and worship their family god. 
Well, if you come from this kind of world, then you know what I mean. And I hope you know that you must stop your idolatry, your worship, your fear of other gods to worship the one true living, loving God and his son, Jesus, and, his, and the Holy Spirit. A good friend of mine was converted from monkey worship. And she reckoned that was a great freedom to worship the one true God and not her, have her life controlled by a monkey. But if you're the product of our secular West, you probably think that idolatry is not relevant to you, but it is. I could walk you around Melbourne and show you lots of temples and shrines. I could show you a temple to fashion, a temple to food, temples to coffee, alcohol, money, happiness, luck, beauty, health, fitness, security, travel, entertainment. And I could show you houses and apartments, which were temples to security, comfort, happiness, luxury, and selfishness. Indeed, my favourite coffee shop is very like a temple. There are kind of shrines around this coffee shop uh, where you can go and adore cakes and biscuits and things like that. And then there's a kind of arrangement where you pay some money and then you go forward to this kind of uh, big bar where you can receive humbly and gratefully the uh, offering of coffee. Now, God is the good of giver of every good and perfect gift, including coffee. And the Bible tells us God gives us all things richly to enjoy. Take beauty, for example. There is now, I believe, a universal pattern of human beauty. You have to be slightly off-white, have no body hair, and be young and thin. Best of luck if you've got it. If you are beautiful, receive it with thanks to God who gave it to you. Don't be arrogant about it. I'm not. Don't despise those who don't have it and don't worship your beauty. I never do that. Don't become obsessed with it. Don't depend on it. Don't spend lots of time or money serving it or preserving it or improving it or worshipping it. You see, it's so easy for a lovely gift of God, like beauty, to become an idol for us, which we fear losing, which we worship, which we think makes us significant, which gives us our value. That's exactly what gods and idols do. But when we worship these things, whatever they are, when we depend on them, when we serve them, when we value them too highly, then we too, dear friends, are idolaters. And in the Old Testament, God says, you shall have no other gods but me. And if we serve Jesus as our Lord, we must not serve other lords. And if we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we cannot flirt with the spirits of this age. The Corinthians thought they could serve other gods, keep on serving other gods, as well as the one true and living God, 
they could not. Let's pick it up in 1 Corinthians 10, and here we'll find four essential keys to how we should live in the world. The particular example is idolatry, but we can apply that, this to every part of our lives and to our particular form of idolatry as well. Paul starts with a warning from the Old Testament, the first part of God's textbook, God's instructions. And this is about God's people back in Old Testament times. Let's start at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, that is, the cloud of God's presence. They all passed through the sea, that is, through the Red Sea, being set free from Egypt. They were all baptized into Moses and the cloud and in the sea. That is, they all escaped captivity in Egypt uh, under the leadership of Moses by the power of God. And they all ate the same spiritual food. That's the manna from heaven. They all drank the same spiritual drink. That is, water miraculously provided. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, you can uh, read about these stories of God's people way back in the Old Testament in the early, early books of the Bible, like Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. For after God rescued his people from captivity in Egypt, he then constantly and miraculously cared for them as they traveled through the desert. So God had blessed them and they'd followed the command of God to leave Egypt and head off back to the promised land. But how did they act? Well, the story is not so good. Nevertheless, we read in verse 5, with most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things happened to them as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So although uh, God's people had experienced this miraculous and wonderful and life-transforming rescue from Egypt, although they were believing the promise of God and had seen God's great power in defeating the power of Egypt to rescue them, nevertheless, it, within a very few weeks or months, they were being tempted to other gods or grumbling about God or taking God for granted or turning to other gods to worship them. And if you've ever read the story of the golden calf they set up, you'll see how powerful and how ridiculous this was. Well, we know what the people did. We've just read it. And what God did, he warned them, then he showed them the consequences of turning away from him, neglecting him, being hypocrites. But why was this written down in the Old Testament? Verses 11 to 13 tell us. Now these things happened to them as an example, 
but they were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages has come. So they didn't need, didn't, didn't need this history written down for them, but we needed it as a warning to us and an encouragement to us. And here's the warning and the encouragement. The warning is in verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That is, if you think you're safe, if you think you won't turn away from God, you're wrong. As John Bunyan said, there's a path to hell from the very gate of heaven. Pride leads to a fall and arrogance leads to disaster. That's the warning. But here's the encouragement. A wonderful verse, verse 12, verse 13 rather. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What a massive warning and what a massive encouragement. The encouragement in verse 13 that I've just read uh, has been a personal encouragement to me again and again throughout my Christian life. For I'm attracted to many idols. <laughs> when I was young, I used to worship cats. And then I became a rabid musician and music was my God, my refuge, my security, my hope, my meaning. I'm easily distracted by entertainment. I often engage in thoughts of revenge and how I'll get people back. There must be a God of revenge. I don't know his name, but uh, there must be one. I'm a bookaholic, a bibliomaniac. If I see a book I want, it's almost impossible for me not to buy it. I'm tempted by alcohol and unhelpful relationships. But none of these are unique to me. As Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to human beings everywhere. That's a comfort, isn't it? But here's a greater comfort which I depend on every day. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What a wonderful promise. I live by it every day, confident that God is sustaining me even when I'm tempted and there is a way out. That is, I can always say no. And there is constant forgiveness when I have failed. Well, the point is that God's people started well, but then got distracted, turned away to other gods. How easy it is to fall in love. Not so easy to love someone in the long term. How easy to get excited about getting fit, but give up after a week and a half. How easy to start a relationship. Not always easy to continue it. How is it, it may be relatively easy to start life as a believer, but it's endurance, faithfulness, constancy, which are more difficult. Because all of us, we are so easily seduced, distracted, discouraged. And because 
we are not willing to give up our petty hopes or our trivial little idols, which are worthless compared to the grandeur and majesty and glory of the one true and living God. So here's the point. It's in verse 14, the first key and the first message that Paul wants to drive home. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He's the first key to living in the world but not being of the world. As in 6.18, we learned that we have to flee from sexual immorality, so we have to flee, that is, run for our lives away from idolatry. Imagine you're on your own one night walking home, then you suddenly realise you're being followed by a bunch of thugs. What do you do? Well, if you're me, if you're me you run for your life. You may stand up and fight them off, good on you, if you're fit. For me, I'd run for my life. Run for your life. Run for your life. Jesus put it this way, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't have two gods, two masters, two lords. You can't do it. Lots of people try to do it. But Jesus says you can't, and he would know. Run for your life. How easy it is to try and prove Jesus wrong. And what a disaster if we try. We might say that we should run because idolatry is dangerous or because we might get seduced, deceived, enticed, confused or trapped by the idol or the idol's God. But let's see how Paul drives the point home in verses 15 to 21. I speak as sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless in the Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion, is it not a participation, a fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation, a fellowship in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? He's talking about the Old Testament sacrifices. What do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be in fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. In the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, we have fellowship with the Lord Jesus. We receive the benefits of his death on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. And we also have fellowship with each other for as God's people, as the church of God, we are the body of Christ. In the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, we feast on Christ and we feast with other believers, the church of God, the temple of God's Holy Spirit. So how bizarre, Paul is saying, to think you can mix your drinks and to engage in idolatry is to open yourselves to demonic powers and influences. How easy it is to open ourselves 
to the devil's power. You can do it any day in our world, can't you? You read your horoscope in the newspaper and what it says actually happens to you that very day. So then you think, well, perhaps someone's interpretation of what the stars do is reliable and you begin to read your stars every day and shape your life by them and leave yourself open to the astrologer. This person becomes your Lord, subtly, slowly, persistently, but powerfully. What folly, what foolishness to turn away from the only wise living God and serve another human being. To stop shaping your life by God's words and let the words of another human shape your decisions. And we're really, in our Western atheistic world suckers for the supernatural. We're so easily distracted. Something mildly miraculous catches our attention and might easily seduce us away from God. You see, we choose our idols and they choke us. But actually, here in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul gives an even more powerful reason to flee from idolatry. There it is in verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? What a powerful argument. For to turn to other gods is to provoke God to jealousy because he wants all our love, all our devotion, all our dependence, all of our lives. And how foolish to provoke to jealousy a God who is stronger than we are. Flee idolatry. Flee from idolatry. For your own sake, flee from idolatry. Well, that's the first key that Paul gives us in this reading. It takes up most of the chapter. What's the second? Let's look at verses 23 and 24. All things are lawful. I think he's quoting the Corinthians there, what they've said or written, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbour. Eat whatever is sold in the market, or the meat market, or just the market generally, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's, quoting the psalm, and the fullness thereof. The first key is flee from idolatry. The second is eat food freely as God's gift. Isn't that striking? Flee idolatry, but then eat food freely as God's gift. You see, it all, all food comes from God. You need to eat. You must be too fussy. Don't be too fussy. You don't have to leave ordinary society to lose your non-Christian friends. For all this food is provided by God anyway. You see, there were so many temples, so many sacrifices of food and drink that most food and drink on sale that was available came from temples or shrines. So what do you do? The answer is, enjoy it. Don't engage in idolatry, intentional idolatry, but if the own, only food available is that sold from pagan temples and shrines, eat it with a clear conscience, thanking God for it. Isn't that a surprise? Didn't expect Paul to be so kind, did you? 
you thought he'd be really grumpy and say, don't touch it. But no, it's actually food that belongs to God. All food comes from God. So we can receive it with thanksgiving. It's God's world. Don't be frightened to live in it. What a relief. Receive the good things of life, even if they come from pagan sources. However, in reality, life is a bit more complicated than that for the Corinthians and for us. Paul has just said, uh, eat whatever's sold without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. But then let's pick it up at verse 27. If any of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go and eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience, that's great. But, verse 28, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, that is, his conscience. So it might be an unbeliever who says, oh, you're a Christian, by the way, did you know that this, the meat you're about to put in your face has actually been offered to an idol? Well, then you'd think, well, no, perhaps I shouldn't eat it, not because it's bad in itself, but because uh, this might make the unbeliever think that I think that idolatry is okay, that I can mix my drinks, I can uh, serve God on Sundays and the rest of the gods every other day of the week. Or the person who makes the comment might be a Christian who's worried about eating meat offered to idols, a nervous Christian. So what do you do? You can eat that food, but not if it's dangerous or damages someone else. It's not that you've lost your liberty. You're still free to eat it. But you forgo your liberty for the sake of someone else. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Verse 29. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? What wonderful freedom to eat or not to eat. And as Paul shows us in the last few verses, 31 to 33, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. Flee from idolatry, eat food freely as God's gift, do everything to the glory of God, third key, and fourth key, give no offence to anyone. There it is, 31 to 33. Whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, that is to glorify God and God alone. But don't give an offence to a Jew or a Greek or the church of God. And then Paul points to his own example, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Four keys. Flee from idolatry. Eat food freely as God's gift. Do everything to the glory of God, but give no offence to anyone. 
And we can turn these into useful questions, I think, when we're thinking about an action, something we might do. First question, is this an idolatry I must flee from? And if it is, if you're tempted by this, if it's going to overpower you, run for your life. Second question, is this something I can enjoy freely as a gift of God and receive with thanksgiving to him? Not as my right, uh, not as something which is a special treat for me because I'm important, not something I will worship, but something I receive as a gift from the hand of God today. Is this something I can enjoy freely? Third question, can I glorify God by doing this? This is a great question to ask. Will getting, getting fit glorify God? Well, yes, it will, but worshipping fitness won't. Will buying a hundred new books glorify God? Well, no, I don't think it will, actually. Uh, I think I should restrain myself. And might I cause offence to someone by doing this? That is, we need to be aware of God and aware of unbelievers and they observe our lives very closely and aware of other Christians as well who are so easily shaped by what we do. If you think you might be an idolater, here are some good questions to ask. Do I spend too much time on this activity? Too much money? on it, too much energy on it. Do I worry about it too much? There's sure, sure signs of an idol. And here's another test. What do you think about when you're not thinking about anything in particular? What our minds go to at that particular point often reveals the gods, the godlets, the little gods, the idols we are serving. So four useful questions from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which will help us think not just about idolatry, but how we relate to the world around us. Is this an idolatry I must flee from? Is this something God-given I can enjoy freely? Can I glorify God by doing this? Will this bring glory to God? Will I bring glory to God by doing this? And might I cause offence to someone by doing this? Well, one of the great privileges of being a human being is that life is very complicated. I occasionally look at snails and think it must be lovely to live a simple life where you eat a bit of a leaf and then have a sleep and then get up and eat another leaf. But being a human being is more complicated. And so that's why this chapter is complicated. Because serving God as people made in God's image and as sinners is a complicated business and living in a wonderful world made by God but which is corrupted by sin is a complicated business as well. So my advice if you found this difficult is to read through 1 Corinthians 10 a number of times perhaps with this outline before you and ask God to show you more and more of how he wants you to live for his glory. 
O gracious God, thank you for teaching us from your word. Please give us a passion for you and your glory and your good for our lives. Please help us to live as yours and yours alone and to love you with heart, mind, soul and strength. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.